Go ahead and please turn in your Bibles uh, to the book of Titus, the New Testament book of Titus, chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I'll give uh, not much, but a little more of an introduction than Pastor Dan gave. Um, my name is David. I'm here today with my wife, Brandy, and our four kids. You may have met some of them early on. I currently, so he, he said I'm a missionary. Uh, that's mostly accurate. Uh, that's more aspirational, I suppose. My, I actually serve currently as youth pastor at Grace Baptist Church in Chattanooga, and I've done that since 2011. And uh, the history that I have with the Richard family actually is from Grace. So I, I was in youth group with uh, Johnny and Ariel and their, the rest of their children, and uh, so... That was uh, back in the day, so to speak. But that's our history going back to grace. But um, I'll share a little more about what we're, Lord willing, trans- transitioning into as it relates to missions. Um, and kind of do that as we talk through some things here from, from Titus today. Titus is, um, is actually just a medium-sized letter written by Paul, who was a church-planting traveling evangelist. And he was writing to Titus who is a young pastor um, on the island of Crete. We read some of that earlier together, didn't we? Uh, We'll focus our time together on Titus chapter 1. I'm going to speak to you this morning about pastors, preaching, and the purpose of God. So if you're into sermon titles, there it is. And if you're not into sermon titles, there it is anyway. Uh, it, it is always a little intimidating to address a group of people you've never met, uh, but what makes it easier is to be reminded that all of us as believers are part of one overarching purpose of God, uh, and we have been. God gave it since the beginning of time, and if we have that in common, it matters a lot less whatever we might not have in common. So my goal today is really to help us to think about that big, global unifying purpose and then show how even in an act like preaching, even something just as simple as what I'm attempting to do right now, even in that act, uh, God is accomplishing his purpose and he's not just accomplishing it through the preaching as it happens, but through the churches in which it happens. And so all of us then are a part of that purpose. And so so that's my Goal is to think about that purpose, and so to to help us help us accomplish that, I'm going to give four statements. I guess you could say arguments uh, from Titus one. So if you're into taking notes, I'll try to make that simple for you. But four arguments from Titus one to show how God's eternal purpose is tied to churches, to all churches. Uh, and to their leaders, the way that that pastors lead churches to accomplish that. That purpose, and, and, and if I'm successful in making those arguments this morning, then I want to give some ways for you, for us, to consider how we can be involved in God's, uh, in seeing that purpose of God accomplished, even in places of the world where He's not yet known. That's the goal for this morning. So, argument number one is this. God is working to make himself known. God is working to make himself known. Uh, Follow along with me. I'm going to read from Titus 1 in just the first four verses. 
The letter is introduced this way. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. God is working to make himself known. We see this in how the the letter opens. There's a a really kind of basic structure to the way that uh, most of the New Testament letters, especially Paul's letters, begin. He first makes very clear who's writing. He calls himself uh, by name, Paul. Uh, this is the same Paul to whom God, to whom Christ dramatically appeared. God saved him. And so you see how even Paul identifies himself as a servant of God, one who serves God and a, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. That just means one sent. So one who serves God and one sent by God. That's Paul's self-identity. And in some ways, that really could just be our definition of a Christian. One who serves God and one who is sent by God. Uh, the command that Jesus gave after his, his resurrection from the dead to make disciples of all nations, what's commonly called the Great Commission, that's a task to be observed and obeyed by all Christians. And so therefore to be a Christian is to serve God by seeking to fulfill that commission, that mandate that he has sent his people to fulfill. So to, to serve God by being sent by him. To fulfill that mission, to make God known in the world by making disciples of all nations. That's how Paul identifies himself, one who serves God and one who's sent by Jesus Christ. That's who he is. Now, why is he writing? He gives two reasons. You'll see it there in verse 1. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. That's to say, for for the sake of those whom God calls to faith in him. For the, for, the, for the faith of the faithful, you could say. And for their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Paul's writing, for their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Which means that Paul, who's writing here, cares about their knowledge of the truth. And he cares about their godliness. So one is not more important than, than the other. They're codependent. They go hand in hand. It matters that believers know the truth. And it matters that that knowledge of the truth produces godliness. So, so oftentimes I'll hear, I'll hear uh, people say something like, um, we don't need to be more doctrinal, we need to be more practical. And I would say, well, you you really can't have one without the other. I think Paul says, uh, I'm writing so that you'll have knowledge of the truth and that that truth will produce godliness. Doctrine can be very practical. Uh, uh, We need to resist the temptation to uh, separate belief from behavior. They, They matter together. One needs the other, and Paul knows this. That's why he's writing to them. And he says that he's writing to them. Uh, You see this in verse 2. In hope of eternal life. In hope of eternal life. Because he knows that eternal life 
depends on one's knowledge of the truth. And the knowledge of the truth is the knowledge of a God who Paul says in verse 2 never lies. God is, so as God reveals himself, he's revealing truth. What does he reveal about himself? You see there in verse, in verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted. So think about all that that verse is saying. God promised eternal life even before the ages began, even before creation. And God manifested that pre-eternal promise in his word through preaching as it's preached. So we know the promise of God from before eternal life when it is preached to us from the word. And God entrusted Paul with that task of preaching. God makes the knowledge of the truth of himself, which leads to eternal life, known through preaching. And Paul writes in hope of that eternal life. And he's writing, we see there in verse 4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Titus, uh, that, that Titus is a, ch- a child of Paul in the faith almost certainly means that Paul was the one who would have led Titus to faith in Jesus. And just as, just as Paul was gifted in preaching the gospel, we see that in other parts of the New Testament. It would seem that Paul had prepared Titus to preach as well. So that Titus could lead his own city. We're going to read about his city shortly. Just as God had made himself known to Paul, Paul made God known to Titus. And then he equipped Titus to be able to make him known to others, to do the same, to pass on that, that gift of preaching. Which is why he wishes him, there in verse 4, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now, in some ways you could say, well, that's just the basic background of the letter. And it is. But notice how even those basics illustrate the normal pattern for the way that God tends to reveal himself. From eternity past, we said God has worked to make himself known. And the specific way that God makes himself known is through Scripture. And even as Paul is writing this letter to Titus, this letter would itself eventually belong in the Scriptures as we have it now. That's how we know about this letter. And so God is using Paul to make God known For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. One way I think you could say this, one way I typically tend to say this is is that the purpose of God throughout history is that he be known and made known. God's purpose is that he be known and made known. I say throughout history because we already have that phrase from before the ages began. You could say even before creation. Other places in scripture refer to God setting his plan of salvation in motion before the foundation of the world. So God's plan, his purpose to make himself known. This is a, you could say, a prehistoric plan. Even before the ages began. But then, even at creation, 
What was the first command that God gave to Adam and Eve? In Genesis 1.28, he told them that they should be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the rest of creation. Another way to say that is that Adam, as God's image bearer, was to fill the earth with more images of God. To multiply himself so that the earth would be filled with the image and knowledge and glory of God. And we know that that's going to be accomplished because we see at the end of the Bible in Revelation 7, we read about this great multitude which no one can number from every tribe, from all nations and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Revelation 7, 9 and 10. So all of this from the... From, from even before creation, but then from the beginning of the Bible to the end, showing that God's eternal purpose is to be made known in all the earth and that that purpose will be accomplished. It will be successful because every people group on the planet will one day know that salvation is from the Lord. Now, if it is God's purpose to be known and made known, how does that primarily happen? Here's argument number two. God is made known through preaching. God is made known through preaching. We saw this in verse three. At the proper time, this eternal life was manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. could paraphrase Paul saying something like, God manifested eternal life in His Word through preaching, and I've been entrusted by God's command with that preaching. God made Himself known by offering eternal life in His Word, and God is entrusting preachers to make Him known by taking that Word and preaching the eternal life in it to others. And, and, and I have in mind just, just the regular normal, weekly preaching that happens in every local church in the world. So this is, not like an, this is not like an abnormal, you know, unusual thing that only like a few really gifted people do sometimes. This is what normal pastors and, and what you think of as just regular congregations all around the world gather to do every week. This is how God plans to make himself Known. Now you might say, isn't God made known in other ways besides preaching? Like, aren't you making it too narrow? And I would say, yes, I am, but, but with two qualifiers, okay? So, first would be this. If preaching doesn't make God and His salvation known then God will not be made known by His people in other ways. In other words, if your, if your pastor stopped preaching eternal life to you, you're probably not going to take the message of eternal life and pass it on to anybody else either. So if it stops with the preaching, it probably stops in the whole church. That's the first qualifier. The second qualifier, I would say, is that in some, in some manner... All forms of making God known are types of preaching. 
So when pastors take seriously their responsibilities to preach eternal life to their people every week, those people can then take that message of eternal life that they're fed Sunday after Sunday and pass it along to others during the week, during your normal conversations and work days and outings and so forth. And every time you, even as a church member, pass that message along, a type of preaching is taking place. You're not standing behind a pulpit. You've probably not prepared a sermon. But when you share the gospel, you are doing a type of preaching. So, so to those who say something like, and maybe you've heard this, preach the gospel with your actions and you, uh, use words if necessary. I say that the Bible has no category for wordless gospel preaching. Preaching requires words. To preach or proclaim the gospel in any way requires words being said and told and explained, much like a pastor does for his congregation regularly. This leads to the third argument. Number three, preaching is the work of qualified pastors. Preaching is the work of qualified pastors. I know we read it earlier. Uh, let, me, let me read it for us again, verses 5 through 9. Follow along if you have it there. Paul tells Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife... And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. In this description of qualified pastors, we see what Titus was supposed to do, we see what elders are supposed to be, and what what elders are supposed to do. And I say elders, don't get thrown off by that term. I think in the Bible, elders and pastors are just interchangeable you know, referring to the same group of people. So, so just pastors, elders, whatever, whatever term you're comfortable with there. Verse 5, what, what, what Titus should do? What's he supposed to do? Verse, verse 5 is kind of a purpose statement for Titus's ministry. It contains two responsibilities. He's told first, put remained what into order. Put what remained into order. I should read it correctly. Which indicates there were things that, as Paul began, that Paul began as he planted the church there that were left unfinished. And Paul expected Titus, as the main pastor there, to see those things through to fulfillment. So put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. So Paul is clear that one of Titus's role as a pastor is to raise up others who could also be pastors. Which would mean that as Titus preached and evangelized and discipled others within the church there, that some of those who sat under his teaching would then be developed into teachers and preachers themselves, just as he became a preacher under the ministry of Paul. 
Some of those would probably serve alongside him in his own church so that Titus would, would not have to be a solo pastor. But others would also be sent out to plant and lead other churches as well. So this is what was expected of Titus in the church there. What then should those elders, should those other pastors be? If, if Titus was to appoint elders in Crete on the island there, he would need to know what an elder should be. And the list that's given here in Titus 1 is very similar, understandably so, to the list that Paul gives another young pastor, Timothy, over in 1 Timothy 3. And the lists are similar, even though the people are different and the places are different, because the qualifications for pastors are universal. They're not, they're not geographically contingent. They're not generationally contingent, you know, like they don't change over place or time. The required characteristics of pastors have been the same in every church on every continent since the first century when these were written. And these qualifications given here in, in verses 6 through 8, they are worth spending some time on to examine in detail and, and contemplating the terms of each of these things, but we're not going to pursue that in this message. Thankfully, um, for, for the purposes of, of our message here, uh, these characteristics are fairly straightforward. You could read through this list and you could be like, yeah, I get that. I get why a pastor should be those things. So even without defining all the terms, we can understand that God demands pastors to lead the way in godliness within their churches. We already saw back in verse 1, all Christians are to strive for godliness. That's why Paul writes, uh, for their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Okay, Godliness is not just for a few believers, it's for all Christians. But within a local church, pastors are especially to lead the way in that godliness. When Paul did write to Timothy... Uh, he told him that pastoral ministry is a noble task. Please understand, pastors are not perfect. If you thought Pastor Dan was perfect, I'm sorry. I'm spoiling it for you. Pastors are not perfect, and God does not expect them to be. Just as pastors are to care well for their churches, churches are to care well for their pastors. Because even the shepherds in the church are still sheep. But Paul helps Titus to understand what those elders, what those pastors should be. And then verse 9, we see what elders should do, what they should do. So verse 9, he, this pastor, this overseer, this elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. This assumes, I think, that a pastor has had at least some training in the Bible. And that such training has strengthened his trust in the Bible as the Word of God. And then, that as he continues in ministry, he continues to cling tightly to the Bible in his own life and in his ministry. If a pastor does that, then he can accomplish these two purposes that are given in, in verse 9. You see there, he must hold firm to the trustworthy Word as taught, so that, what? Two things. He may be able to... First, give instruction in sound doctrine, and also, second, to rebuke those who contradict it. First, to give instruction in sound doctrine. A pastor 
can only give instruction in sound doctrine if he himself has been taught that sound doctrine and if he continues to, as we said, cling tightly to that sound doctrine that he has been taught. And he's got to give, so he's got to give instruction in. And he's got to be able to rebuke those who contradict it. And, and this is more than simply pointing out the faults of everyone who disagrees with you. This is, this is being able to see weaknesses and contradictions to sound doctrine and then to address them lovingly. Uh, I, I heard one pastor say recently, the pastor has the difficult task of being, non-argument, being a non-argumentative person who knows how to make good arguments. He must be valiant for truth and a peacemaker, a man who contends for the truth without being contentious. So, so yes, when you hear something that, that, uh, that contradicts sound doctrine, rebuke it, oppose it, but do so with the aim of being a peacemaker, not a fight starter, right? Those are the kinds of things, these are the kinds of things to look for in a qualified pastor, one who's to be tasked with preaching the Bible week after week, year after year, so that the church can be built up by the Word of God. Here's, here's the last point. Here's the last argument. Qualified pastors know God and make Him known. Qualified pastors know God and make Him known. And they're able to do this because they're concerned with sound doctrine. They're concerned with the right teaching of Scripture. So those priorities given in verse 9, I think, provide the categories for the rest of chapter 1. All pastors, as we saw, are to give instruction in sound doctrine and to be able to rebuke those who contradict it. So, in verses 10 through 14... Paul shows Titus what it looks like to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. And then in verses 15 and 16 and chapter 2 verse 1, he tells him how to give instruction in sound doctrine. So what does it look like to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine? Let me, just, let me read uh, the rest of the chapter here and then we'll, we'll talk quickly through it. Uh, Titus 1 verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate. Empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, Unfit for any good work. And then chapter 2 verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. 
He starts there in verse 10 by giving these instructions, specifically how to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. And so, and so he, he describes them. What, what are these people like? These people who contradict sound doctrine, what are they like? And, and, and the things uh, listed here could apply to any number of people within the city there. They could potentially even apply to some possibly even within the church. But Paul seems to have in mind specifically those who operate this way, even though they carry the title of teacher or preacher within a church. He says they teach for shameful gain what they ought not to teach, and so they must be silenced. So how should Titus, a true teacher, silence the false teachers in Crete? What's he told there in verse 13? Rebuke them sharply. And then the reason or the purpose that they may be sound in the faith. Notice that it's not it's not rebuke them sharply so that they may be humiliated or rebuke them sharply so that they may be exposed, but rebuke them sharply so that they can become sound in the faith. So the reason pastors should rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine is so that the one who now contradicts sound doctrine might one day himself teach sound doctrine. And we said before that the pastor must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. You see the distinction there between true believers and false believers in verses 15 and 16, he talks about the pure, but also the defiled and unbelieving. I think the reason he does that is because pastors will regularly speak both to the pure and to the defiled. And, And interestingly, Paul says to just feed both groups the same medicine. Feed them sound doctrine. Notice what is especially true of the defiled There at the beginning of verse 16, he says, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. And so so their faith is a false faith. Their profession doesn't match their practice. They, They forget that the knowledge of truth accords with godliness. They have knowledge of the truth, but they have no godliness. And so what to do with them? We see in chapter 2, verse 1, You, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. In other words, for the pastors who truly know God, the best thing they can do for their people, whether the people are pure or defiled or a combination of both, is to make God known by teaching what accords with sound doctrine. And that may sound overly simple. It's certainly not flashy. It's usually not what the so-called... Experts in church growth would recommend. But it does seem that that's what will lead to that scene we read from Revelation 7. With that innumerable multitude around the, around the throne of God from every nation who know the God of their salvation. They get there by this. Pastors in, enabled in sound doctrine to give instruction in it regularly. Now you might be sitting there thinking, this is all fine and good, but I'm not a pastor. And, and to you, I say, look, I'm not, I'm not pressuring you to be a pastor. I'm just, I'm just telling you, be a good church member. But, but ask yourself this. What can I do to, ensure, to help ensure that churches around the world 
accomplish this purpose that God has given them, to make God known through preaching. What, what can you and I, as just, as just as church members, do about this? For our family, uh, the, that answer comes really in the form uh, of an organization called Live Global. Um, my daughters earlier were passing out just cards of our family. Uh, if you didn't receive one, we'll try to get one in your hands just so you can uh, kind of know our names and get to know us. You'll not find the Live Global organization or information on that card. Um, for the past about three or four years, we fully expected that, our, that, that we as a family would be moving to Eastern Europe. Uh, to be able to, to do some of the things mentioned here, to, to give instruction to pastors in sound doctrine so that they can lead their churches uh, to, in healthy ways, uh, to raise up more pastors so that more healthy churches can be established throughout Eastern Europe. We were connected with church planters in Moldova. We had planned to work alongside them. There have been uh, several factors over the past few months, including a global pandemic, uh, that now make it rather unlikely that we will be able to move there at least anytime soon. So as we've prayed and had conversations with others a lot smarter than us, uh, we have come to know about an organization called Live Global. Live Global is a, a branch of a mission agency that we've been with now for, for about three years. And through Live Global... We can maintain our relationships with these pastors in Moldova, and we can connect with other pastors and church leaders around the globe for the purpose of training men in those regions to be equipped with sound doctrine so they can preach it in their churches so that other preachers can, can be raised up to do the same in parts of the world where God is not yet known. In the United States, we, we have... Just dozens of phenomenal Bible colleges and seminaries uh, where, where folks, guys can be trained for ministry, can be, can be trained to, to preach and to lead churches. Yet there are thousands of pastors outside the United States who have little to no access to any education like that at all. Only a tiny percentage of Pastors around the globe have ever even had a college-level theology course. And yet they're faithfully leading their churches with what they have. And through Live Global, I get to be a part of a team of people that's coming alongside those pastors around the world to help equip them to do what Paul instructs Titus to do here. To help them teach what accords with sound doctrine. And not just through education, but also sharing our experience with them. So, so I mentioned I've served nine years now uh, as one of the pastors at a church in Chattanooga. And so we've got experience even that we can share with them so that they can begin to multiply themselves in ministry as they make God known to their people. And I hope you're seeing the pattern of this. I hope from Scripture you've, you've seen this pattern. But, but think about what happens when this is in place, just as we saw in Titus. Pastors being equipped in the trustworthy word of God to teach it and preach it. And through their preaching to make known God and his eternal life to their congregations. And then the church members 
in those congregations take that gospel that they're hearing and they are equipped to share it. And more within the church are raised up to help that pastor or to start new churches so that those churches can be established in places where they don't yet exist. And the gospel continues to be preached all around the world, just as Jesus said in Matthew 24, the gospel will be preached in all the world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So, what can you do? Let me give a couple of suggestions. First, understand that the preaching of the gospel and and the caring for and raising up of new pastors who will lead the way in doing this, that's the task of the whole church. It doesn't just fall on one person. It takes all of us to raise up new pastors. Uh, I've heard it said, and I agree with it, seminaries don't make pastors. Churches do. The world needs pastors and church members who know what the gospel is. They know that there really is a God who created all that exists So that he can be known in that creation. And that even though the first man and woman rebelled against God and his mandate. And they chose instead to fill the the earth with their own image and not the image of God. And in doing so they were placed along with all of us who have done the same. Placed under God's good and just wrath. But God mercifully intervened. God provided a substitute in the person of his son Jesus who succeeded where the man and the woman and all the rest of us failed. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we deserve to die, and was raised to life again by God as a proof of His victory over sin and death. And all who will by faith turn from sin and trust in the person and work of Jesus will be spared from God's wrath and brought back into His Favor. We need pastors who preach that gospel and who lead their churches to do the same. So that, that would be the first thing I would, I would suggest is understand that to see pastors raised up in, in our country but also around the world, that's, that's our job. We train our young people to do that. And then second is this, very simply, get to know an organization like Live Global they're on the web, liveglobal.org, and see, just maybe, maybe browse their website. See how you might be able to connect with what God is doing around the world. Maybe to assist financially with those who are working in those ways, or to uh, see where, where your family could, could be involved, or they could partner with churches around the world. Um, so many options uh, that you would find there. I encourage you to take a look at it. Let me pray towards that end. Father, we know that you always accomplish your purposes. And we are glad for that. And we ask that you would cause us, as your people, to be faithful to make you known. And we ask for you to provide in your churches qualified pastors and, and, and healthy churches, especially in parts of the world where you are not yet known. And show us how we might live to make that happen. In Jesus' name, amen.